So I think it's uh, really cool that you think I went to just a regular rabbinic school with a bunch of, you know, rabbis with long beards and snuck in and they made me a rabbi and didn't know I believed in Jesus, right? <laughs> no, um, Messianic Jews, we have our own seminaries and our own ordination programs. And so uh, I was in a Messianic or Christian Jewish rabbinical program. Well, some people like to get up early and snuggle up, you know, with a cup of quick trip Italian roast coffee and, you know, maybe they're at home in front of their iPad or their laptop and, you know, maybe you even do it by the fireplace and you turn on one of those little gas fire logs that's real easy to light and it's a crisp fall morning and you're cozy and you snuggle up with a big, thick, weighty book, you know, on something like Latin grammar, Euclidean geometry, the history of Israel and Judah. Yeah, that's the kind of reaction that I get when I tell people that I love Leviticus. I absolutely love it. Some people are Bible geeks. I'm kind of a Leviticus geek. And I have a lot of books on the purification procedures of the Old Testament, books on uh, sacrifices and what they mean and different traditions of the cultures around Israel, Babylonian, Egyptian customs having to do with sacrifice and atonement. And, you know, my favorite set of books on Leviticus is a three-volume commentary set by a conservative Jewish scholar named Jacob Milgram that runs a total of 3,000 to 3,500 pages. And I have a lot of things underlined and highlighted and starred and little notes written in the margin, and I absolutely love it. And not many people can understand that. (laughs) Let me say something about Leviticus. Leviticus is kind of like the first movie in a series. It promises to be a really interesting series, but when you go to the theater to see this movie Leviticus, it turns out to be one of those artsy films, you know, very artistic and complex, and it raises a lot of questions that it never answers, and you leave, you know, pretty much as confused as you were when you came into the theater. And then the other thing about this this great movie Leviticus is the sequel didn't get made for a very long time. In fact, by the time the sequel came out, people forgot about the first movie. Kind of like Lord of the Rings in the Silmarillion. Who reads the Silmarillion? (laughs) And the sequel is Yeshua's life, the life of Jesus, the life of Messiah, and how it was interpreted by those who encountered him, by those who witnessed him. I happen to love priestly mysteries, those things that are in that first artsy film, Leviticus. I happen to love purification procedures and the Shekinah and the Holy of Holies and the one enthroned above the cherubim, the burnt offerings and the well-being sacrifices, the positive force of holiness, and most relevant for our scripture text today, the significance of priestly representation before God. Now, When Derek asked me if I would come and speak, I first of all assumed that he would be like in Bermuda on vacation with his family or something, had no idea he would actually be here. That's cool. Um, And he said, you know, we follow the Christian lectionary and there's a text that's coming up, but you know, you might not want to do that text. Maybe you want to talk about something else. I said, well, what is it? He said, it's Hebrews, you know, Hebrews. It's chapter five and I said, well, that's okay. I'm writing a book right now, Yeshua, Our Atonement. You know, that's Jesus, Our Atonement. It's all about 
Leviticus and the sacrifices and purification procedures and what all that meant and how it was symbolic of life and death and, and how it bridges to our understanding of the death of Messiah and atonement and how, what atonement means, how he atoned for us. And I said, guess what the bridge is between Leviticus and the death of Messiah? The book of Hebrews. I said, so as a matter of fact, I think I could just scribble an outline in five minutes and it'd be no problem. So I hope you're not offended, that's what I did. F.F. <laughs> Bruce says of the book of Hebrews that it sees details about the temple and the priestly procedures as mysteries revealed by the Holy Spirit signifying spiritual truths for the present time. I say that Hebrews is filled with priestly mysteries and sacrificial riddles. And I want to give you a list of some priestly mysteries, and some of them are going to bear directly on our text in Hebrews. These priestly mysteries are a part of my book, Yeshua, Our Atonement. And the first one is this. In the temple, atonement works because God says it does, and only because God says it does. Atonement is by divine decree. It's not a formula. It's not a natural process. Atonement is not a law higher than God. It's a divine decree. I hate to use this word because some people will object to it, but you could say it's arbitrary. God decides what is effective, and it is because he says it is so. It's not arbitrary if you recognize God's authority in the matter. Number two, the methods of purification in the temple, in the Torah, in Leviticus, have no effectiveness in and of themselves. Maybe you can relate to that with baptism. I don't know the full theology of the Christian church about baptism. I know it's super important to your denomination, so he didn't tell me I got it wrong the first service. So I think you believe, as I believe, that when someone is baptized, it's not the, there's nothing actually happens because of the physical ceremony itself. It's not inherently effective. It's not as if it actually washes away sins. In the same manner, the procedures in the temple had no effectiveness in and of themselves. Number three. The mediators that are appointed in the Torah, the priests who mediate between us and God, they're fallible just like us. Unlike your pastor Derek, you know, who's infallible, those guys were fallible completely. Number four, temple atonement was incomplete and left the worshiper shut out from God's presence. You see, When you learn about atonement in Leviticus, you find it can only get you as close as between the altar and the building. God is inside the building. He's not even in the front room. He's shut up in the back room on the other side of the veil, and you can't get any closer. Atonement in the Torah brings you into the nearness, but not into the presence. And that's a mystery. It's a mystery, especially because of priestly mystery number five. The Hebrew Bible promises better purifications than what were afforded in the temple. It promises better purifications in days to come, things the temple could never achieve. Number six, and when I say the Hebrew Bible, forgive me, I mean the Old Testament. I use different terminology sometimes and forget to change it to your terminology. Uh, In the Old Testament, there are promises of better purifications than what we see in the temple. The Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, number six, reveals another priesthood, a kind of priesthood that predates the Levites and transcends what the sons of Aaron represented. Therefore, number seven, 
within the Torah itself, there's already foreshadowed a change in the priesthood, a change in the Torah. If you've tried to read Hebrews before, most people read Hebrews with a replacement paradigm. They read Hebrews as if Christianity came along and replaced Judaism. The New Testament came along and it replaced the Old Testament. God made a mistake in the Old Testament and Jesus corrected it in the New Testament. The Son told the Father how it really ought to be and He changed the religion. But it's not like that. Actually, the change in priesthood, the change in Torah that Hebrews talks about happened before Jesus came, as we will see in our passage today. Number eight, therefore, something greater than the temple will come. And those who encountered Jesus and understood the meaning of his life said, yes, it has. It has come. Number nine, the temple's purifications are shadows cast from the radiance of the glory to come. Shadows cast from the radiance of the glory to come. Now, many of you may be familiar with a verse in Hebrews that puts it in a slightly different way. It actually doesn't. It's just the translators are prejudiced, and so they insert a word. It says something like, they are but shadows, or they are mere shadows, or they are just shadows. But guess what? But, just, and mere are not in the text. It just says they're shadows. And the translators assumed, oh, being a shadow is inferior, But if I saw a shadow of the radiance of God's glory, I wouldn't say, oh, I only saw a shadow. I would say, I saw a shadow. They're shadows cast from the radiance of the glory to come. And number 10, the one that sums up all of those priestly mysteries I just talked about is this. What came before prepared us for what would come later. What came before prepared us for what came later later. That first movie, Leviticus, the artsy film that everyone forgot about when the sequel finally arrived many, many years later, prepared us for what would come. Now, in light of these priestly mysteries, let me read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 again. And then, verse by verse, I'll explain what the passage means as best I can. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 1. 
priests in the Torah, in Leviticus, were humanly appointed. One of us, like us, appointed through a process that was very human, no divine voice. I mean, yes, they had to be sons of Aaron, but in time there came to be so many sons of Aaron, which ones are going to function in the temple, which ones are going to do this, which ones are going to do that, which one's going to be the high priest appointed by men. In some periods of history, they're even appointed corruptly. But they could reach to God. They stood between God and us, and they mediated. And only their application of our sacrificial blood that we brought to the temple could make it effective. Verse 2, being like us, even fallible, they were ideal representatives because they sympathized. They shared our condition. And what is our condition that separates us from God? It's this death that we carry all about us, and it's this guilt. It's a twofold condition, death and guilt, that clouds us. And they, sharing that condition of mortality and guilt, empathized with our weakness. Verse 3, but the temple priesthood, although they could reach to God, nonetheless, the temple priesthood was limited because they also needed reparation offerings and purification sacrifices because they also had guilt just as we have guilt. Therefore, in many of the ceremonies, they had to make an offering for themselves before they could make an offering on our behalf. Now, when the writer says that, he or she is implying something about Yeshua, about Jesus, that Yeshua is a better priest because he didn't actually share our guilt. Now, paradoxically and ironically, he did bear our guilt, but it wasn't his own guilt, and therefore, there was no need to actually make an offering for himself in making an offering for us. He shares our condition of mortality, and he bears our guilt, but he himself is without sin. Verse 4, although humanly appointed these priests in Leviticus, the other side of the equation is this. Their priestly calling is divinely authorized. Divinely authorized. Priests were a paradox. As to their person, fallible and beset with weakness like us. But as to their office, supremely authorized by God to reach to heights no other person could reach. Even your infallible pastor, Pastor Derek, isn't authorized in the same way that the priests in the temple were authorized to bring what the person brought before God and make its effect reach into the heavens. Verse 5, now the writer begins to discuss Yeshua, to discuss Jesus. And to do so, he draws on a tradition within the Hebrew Bible, within the Old Testament, the divine Messiah tradition. It's a good tradition to learn about. It's slightly complicated and I guess I'll be kind of introducing you to it in my remarks here. He's appealing to this divine Messiah tradition, and to do so, he's going to draw on Psalm 2, and in the next verse, he's going to draw on Psalm 110. And we need to understand a little bit about this divine Messiah tradition. And I want to suggest to you an interpretation of it that's called 
that understands what Hebrews is doing is a midrash. Have you ever heard that word before? Midrash? Midrash is a characteristic Jewish way of deriving secondary meanings from a text, of finding in the text a meaning that goes beyond the plain meaning, a meaning that goes beyond the surface, a meaning that looks to the deeper implications of the passage. And I'm not doing a seminar on Midrash. If I was, I would explain to you, how do you keep that from going crazy or just becoming cheap allegory? Well, that would be another seminar sometime. Trust me when I say the rabbis don't do that. And neither does the writer of Hebrews. You see, here's what's going on in verse 5. He's quoting from Psalm 2. But Psalm 2 in its plain meaning is not talking about Jesus. I hope it's okay that I said that. Psalm 2 in its plain meaning, you don't have to believe me, just think about it, you know, consider this as a possible, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right, one day you, maybe you'll see it my way, maybe you never will. Psalm 2 is talking about the Davidic kings. It's talking about the Messiahs with a small M. Psalm 2 is an enthronement ceremony for the Davidic king. And you see, the thing is, on the day that one of the kings from the line of David took their throne, there was this apparent enthronement ceremony in which... The priest uttered this psalm, speaking on behalf of God, and said, Today I have begotten you. You are my son. You see, the Davidic kings were symbolically God's sons. Why? Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God told David that his descendants who would come after him would be like sons to him. And therefore, the Davidic kings, the messiahs with a small m, were sons, and that's why it says, today I have begotten you. What is it about today? Today, the day you are having your inauguration to the throne of Judah. <coughs> today, symbolically, you become my son. Now, how is the writer of Hebrews using that? He's using it in a very Jewish way, in a very legitimate way. He sees a mystery here. He sees an old enthronement ceremony pointing to foreshadowing, being a signpost of a last day's actual realization because one day a Davidic king would come who wouldn't just be symbolically the son, who would be actually the son. And he says, you can look back to what happened in the Old Testament and see that it was a foreshadowing of something even greater. Yes, God said to the Davidic kings, I'll make you symbolically my sons because... God knew his son would be born to the line of David and would be the actual Messiah with a capital M. Then, in verse 6, he goes to another part of the divine Messiah tradition. He goes to Psalm 110. And to understand Psalm 110, you have to understand some background about King David. You need to know that King David took upon himself a role that God did not say he should take on. God didn't tell David to do this, but David did a certain thing, and you're probably familiar with the story. David put on a linen robe, and who wore the linen robes? The priests and the Levites, specifically the ministering priests. He put on the linen robe. Not only did he put on a linen robe, he put on an ephod, which is an apron, kind of apron that priests would wear. He puts on the linen robe and the apron or the ephod, and what does he do? He goes down and dances with the Levites and the priests. Now, when David decided to do this, he was doing a slightly dangerous thing. God didn't say, hey, David, I want you to take on a priestly role. I don't want you to just be a king. I want you also to be a priest. David took it upon himself. However, David was very careful. 
He did not take for himself the things which God had apportioned to the sons of Aaron. (coughs) He did not go and minister at the altar in the sanctuary and handle the sacred blood and perform the most holy functions of the priesthood. He took upon himself a different kind of priesthood, a priesthood that represented the people worshiping before God. Now, Psalm 110 gives us some insight into David's rationale for doing this, and apparently Psalm 110 also became a royal ceremony. And perhaps the priest would speak these words in Psalm 110 as the voice of God to King David and to the descendants of King David, those messiahs with a small m. (coughs) And here was David's rationalization for what he did. He said, God, there was already a king in Jerusalem before me, and it's written in your own Torah, you know, Genesis chapter 14. And this king, this Canaanite king who lived in Jerusalem before me, Abraham, met him. And the thing about this Canaanite king, Melchizedek, is this. He was a king who was also a priest of the Most High God. And God, I'm now the king in Jerusalem, and I'm going to take on that role that earlier king in Jerusalem took, and I'm going to be a king and a priest. And what do we find in Psalm 110? We find apparently after the fact, God approved of what David did. Psalm 110 says that God recognized Davidic kings as a kind of priest. And so the writer of Hebrews makes another midrash. He says, this was a signpost pointing to a future reality, a last day's realization of the truth, that the messiahs with a small m, the Davidic kings, took on a kingship and a priesthood in the same way when God's actual son descends from heaven and dwells on earth, he too will be a king and a priest a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that priesthood will be eternal. The divine Messiah really is king and priest. But verse 7, what sort of priest is Yeshua? What sort of priest is Jesus? Is he the kind who's so high above us he can't relate to us? The writer draws on a story from the life of Jesus to give the answer no. What story from the life of Jesus is the writer drawing on? In verse 7, maybe you thought of it when you read it. He's drawing on the story of Gethsemane. Do you remember the first time you heard the story of Gethsemane? If you're like me, maybe it confused you. You had this image of Jesus as this person whose facade would never crack, who was so strong and glorious, nothing could shake him, not a person who would be afraid and who would be praying in fear the night before he died. Not a person who would face death and fear the pains to come. Not a person who would quail at what was asked of him. Not a person who would pray as a penitent and say, not my will, God, but your will be done. The story of Gethsemane is a shocking story, but it shows us how deeply our divine Messiah identified with us to the point of completely sharing our condition. He bore our condition of mortality. He experienced the pains and fears of death himself. And ironically, he even bore our condition of guilt. But there's a difference between the way our divine Messiah experienced that and the way you and I experience it, and that is that he was the ideal human, the perfect human being. And so he endured it with reverence, and his prayers were heard because of his reverence. 
In verse 8, the divine Messiah himself took up the all-too-human experience of fear and death. It says he was perfected by this. And you say, what can that mean? Isn't God already perfect? Isn't Messiah already perfect? The word perfect can also mean complete. How was he perfected? What, what lack could there be in God? God is already infinite. God is already all-powerful and all-knowing. What lack could there be in God? Some things can only be had by experience. It's the kind of knowledge that you can't have unless you experience it. You can be an oncologist with advanced medical degrees, but if you've never had cancer, you can't say that you really know what your patients are going through. Our divine Messiah took that cancer on himself, and he experienced it. And so, when we, if we have forewarning, find ourselves lying, suffering, and dying, at least we'll have this comfort. We'll know that he knows that he was perfected and took that experience in him. Verse 9. Now we start to get into how what Yeshua did for us, how what Jesus did for us actually worked. And I'm going to explain the theory of it in just a moment a little more clearly. But verse 9, he identified with us all the way down to death. That's how Scott McKnight, the Christian theologian, puts it. Jesus identified with us all the way down to death so that he could rescue us and lift us up out of it. And in verse 10, we see another aspect of how what he did worked. He represented us before God, like the priests in Leviticus, only better. So verse 9, he identified with us all the way down to death, and in identifying with our experience, lifted us up out of it. And verse 10, he represented us before God, like the priests in the Torah, but only better. Now, if you want to understand atonement, my next book that's coming out is all about atonement. I take the sacrificial procedures and purification procedures from Leviticus and explain them and what the symbolism of it all is, and I I write about the book of Hebrews as a bridge to understanding and then talk about the full accomplishment of everything that our Messiah did for us. Leaning heavily on the work of Scott McKnight, I explain that there are five metaphors for atonement and there are six accomplishments of our Messiah that make atonement happen. In this passage in Hebrews, we see two of them. Now, as Scott McKnight explains the big picture of what happens in atonement, he says, it's identification for the purpose of incorporation. I expand that out explain it with a little more detail, and I say, Jesus' atonement is a total identification with us all the way down to death for the purpose of incorporating us into his victory, his destiny, his people, and his redeemed world to come. How does he accomplish it? He accomplishes accomplishes it through six aspects of atonement. Two of them are in our passage. The two that are in our passage are good theological words recapitulation and representation. Now let me explain these two. There are only two out of six, but there are two really good ones. Recapitulation. Verse 9 is about recapitulation. 
What is recapitulation? To recapitulate something is to repeat it and summarize it. Usually the purpose of recapitulation is to, to summarize it or to repeat it in a way that explains it better than was explained the first time. How did Messiah repeat and summarize anything? What is there that he recapitulated? Well, Scott McKnight puts it this way. He says, Jesus recapitulated Adam's life, Israel's life, the life of every one of us. The early church fathers said it this way. They said, he became what we are so that we could become what he is. You see, God could have accomplished atonement, you know, by magic, by his awesome power, with a nod of his head, a mere twinkling of his nose. He could have just said, I hereby decree that you're all forgiven, whitewashed, all that stuff is done away with, the mortality condition you have, I'm just going to erase it, Uh, I'm just going to make it happen, let's start over, clean slate. But our God is intensely personal and relational. It's not his way to do something the easy way. It's his way to do it the relational, experiential way. To enter into humanity, in fact, to invade humanity himself, the divine Messiah descended from heaven and took it on. And in so doing, he shared our experience. He repeated it. He summed it up. He's the second Adam, the new Israel, the ideal you or me that we could have been and that we will be. He recapitulated it. He invaded humanity to rescue us from within. He shared our condition and became perfect. He rose above our condition and in so doing brought us up with him. He became what we are so we could become what he is. Verse 10 is representation. (coughs) Representation means that the divine Messiah represents us before God. Like the priests in the temple represented the people before God. Remember, they were supremely authorized to reach up to heaven and to be effective for the people. But they were fallible and limited. As the temple priests were supremely authorized, how much more so our divine Messiah. For you see, the priests in Leviticus were a third party standing between us and God. But that is the profound thing about our Messiah being divine. He isn't exactly a third party. He himself is an aspect of God, the Son, in perfect union with the fullness of God, the Father. And what does he do? He mediates for us, but not as a third party. He mediates for us as God himself. And yet at the same time, he wouldn't be a fitting mediator for us if he wasn't also human, so that he sympathizes with our condition and actually recapitulates who we are and brings us up to God. Something like the combination of the divine human Messiah that we understand now had to be the way. It's God's way. It's the personal, relational, experiential way. Only a divine human Messiah could represent us so completely. Now, that's a lot of theory. That's kind of like a big book on Latin grammar or Euclidean geometry or the history of of Judah and Israel. But it's not just there for theory. Why is the writer of Hebrews even writing this stuff? He's writing it to a group of people who are struggling. And you know who they are? They're Messianic Jews. That's right. Most of the New Testament is written to Gentiles. 
But three, two, maybe three books of the New Testament are written specifically to a Jewish audience. Hebrews, James, and some would say Matthew. Actually, not me. I don't think Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. (coughs) Why was he writing to a Jewish audience? Who are these Jewish people he's writing to? They were Messianic Jews, Jews who believed in Jesus, who are thinking of giving up their faith. Why were they thinking of giving up their faith? Read the whole book of Hebrews. You'll see what the issues were. Hebrews 11 should be a big clue. Hebrews 11 about the people who received the promises of God but never saw them come to pass in their lifetime but kept holding on to them with hope and faith. You know what? These Messianic Jews heard the message about Jesus and they got saved but they didn't feel saved. They were elevated, lifted up, made completely acceptable to the Holy One of Israel and yet they still felt separated from the Holy One of Israel just as we feel separated from the Holy One of Israel. God was invisible and silent to them like he's invisible and silent to us. The reason for these profound theories about the world to come and atonement and the reason we need these pictures that explain things in such lofty terms is because we need a hope to hold on to so that we don't give up on our faith like these Messianic Jews in the book of Hebrews were thinking of giving up on their faith. The more deeply we understand the mystery of the future, the more we can be like the people in Hebrews 11 who never gave up. Even though the promise wasn't realized in their lifetime, they clung to it. They perceived the mystery. They looked deeply into it. They longed for the city whose builder and architect is God. They they could visualize it and understand it. And atonement is one of those things that we need to understand so we can hold on. Our Father, I pray that we would understand priestly mysteries, atonement mysteries. Because what we find in atonement is that our life should be lived based on who we are and not who we were. Teach us, Lord, the glories of all that our divine Messiah has accomplished for us so that we will know who we are. Amen.